Hi, film fans. Happy New Year. Apologies. Well, not apologies, actually, but maybe you already listened to our first episode of 2023. Um, But maybe this is the first episode that you're diving into for the new year and I didn't want you to miss out. And what is the point? What is the date? When do you stop saying it anyway? I'm going till the end of January. So just a warning if you see me in person and I haven't said it to you yet. It's coming your way. Hope you are well. Hope you are stepping into a new year with um, excitement and optimism and I don't know, just possibilities. Um, That's kind of how I'm how I'm attacking 2023. So I hope you are the same. We're very excited because we've got lots of great stuff coming up for you on the podcast. It's exciting times. So thank you for being on the journey with us. We have got, I think, well, you see, there's a bit of a debate about this week, but it might be a first for soundtracking. If it isn't, this certainly doesn't happen very often. Uh, in speaking to Bones and All scriptwriter, the wonderful David Kajanich, I've now completed the Triumvirate. That's a word I didn't know about until today and Ben wrote it down. Triumvirate, it's probably not even how you say it, of director Luca Guadagnino and composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. David is so insightful about the process and also how music is fundamentally important to it. Plenty more on that shortly. First up, if you have been following me on our social medias or my social media, then you might well have seen me tease the fact that we are giving away a pair of tickets to an exclusive pre-release screening of The Fablemans. Now, The Fablemans is the brand new film from Steven Spielberg. It comes out in cinemas on the 27th of January. It's already been nominated for five Golden Globes. It's semi-autobiographical and it is beautiful. It's kind of how he fell in love with cinema and filmmaking. And it's so good. It's so good. So how would you like to get along to an exclusive screening in London on the 19th of January, which is only on recording this 10 days away? It will be an evening celebrating the magic of the movies and Steven Spielberg. And the event is invite only and tickets cannot be exchanged. So, um... This is a once in a lifetime opportunity, really, if I'm being honest. Um, You and a friend, you and a loved one, you and a partner, whoever it is you decide to take if you're lucky enough to win, have to be able to make your own way to London for the 19th of January in the evening. And all you've got to do to be in with a chance of winning is answer a question. And the question is, what was the first film that Steven Spielberg and John Williams worked together on and what year was it released? What was the first film that Steven Spielberg and John Williams worked together on and what year was it released? Uh, Two answers then required for that question, if you wouldn't mind send them to me if you know the answer, to info at edithbowman.com. Info at edithbowman.com to be in with a chance of winning that. Uh, It closes, the competition closes on the 15th of January at midday, that's noon, UK time, I should add, for our international audience, although I'm not sure you might be able to get here in time for the screening. But there we go. Midday, 15th of January is when it closes. So get your answers in now. What was the first film that Steven Spielberg and John Williams worked on together? And what year was it released? Send that to me at info at edithbowman.com. Right then, on to David. And we'll begin with one of the tracks that he included in the script. Save a Prayer by Duran Duran. You saw me.
it. Hey! <laughs> Everything's good over there? Yeah, it's fine. Thank you very much. What about you? Yeah, good. I thank you for doing this on the weekend. I have, I'm just on a jury. Oh, well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time, considering, you know, you, you have very little time to yourself at the minute. So I'm so really happy to be doing this. Edith, are you kidding? Uh... I love this podcast. I mean, the fact that I somehow fit in, I'm, I'm so happy and grateful to be asked. Thank you for that. Well, I, f- I feel like you're the kind of, um, you're, the, you're the final point in our triangle celebrating um, Bones and all, to be honest, because we've had Luca on and I was lucky enough to, to get some time with Trent and Atticus, actually. Aren't um, they the sweetest people? Ah, oh, lovely guys. Love, and they love what they do. Yes. They were brilliant. It was so great to talk to them, particularly after speaking to Luca about it and TNA, as he calls them, and sort of really get that kind of uh, insight because it was a different journey for him in terms of, well, you know, you guys have worked together in the past of looking for a more traditional score aspect for this this particular film. But listen, it's great to see you again. And, and I hope that you got from that short time we got to spend in London together, just how much I really enjoyed Bones and All. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal on so many levels. I mean, that kind of excitement, it just gives us so much energy. You know, I, I, yeah. it really is the one thing you you really can hope for is that something like this, which is such an odd thing in many respects, it's just that it that people find their way into it. That's all. It doesn't yeah. have to be more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we spoke before the film was out, you know, and, and people had had the chance to to go and, and explore it and, and experience it and hopefully fall in love with it. I, and I just wondered what that response has been like for you. First of all, I've been really uh, relieved that what people seem to take away when they leave the film is, is that it was a love story more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine our, you know, our concern about that, given how graphic it is in some scenes and, and, and how it really does use the grammar of horror as well as other mm-hmm. grammars of other genres. But we were just worried that people would be put off, too put off by that to really engage with it as a, as a love story. But that doesn't seem to be happening, thank goodness. So, you know, the conversations I've had with people about the film tend to be about ways they're able to um, decode it in a personal way, you know, in a, yeah. in, you know, oftentimes regarding, you know, experience they've had being invisible, being marginalized, being pushed to the side. And, and if a film that has this kind of conceptual force can still allow for that kind of, um, I don't know, more intricate set of emotional responses, then yeah. I feel like we did our jobs pretty well <laughs> because uh, that, that wasn't a given when, when you start a project like this. Where did it start for you, you know, in terms of adapting Camille's book and and starting this journey? Because what is this the third project with Luca that you've worked on with him? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just sent this book that even 30 pages into it, I was, I was already thinking about Luca and sent it to him. And then, you know, he, he wasn't able to read it at the same time I was reading it because he was, mm. he was just working on so many things. And, you know, I think it was two years later, I finally had a script and, and sent it his way. And I think we both had the same initial thought, which is this is going to be really tricky tonally because it's juggling so many grammars of so many genres, but also because to take something this potentially ridiculous as a concept um, and wed it to something that absolutely mustn't be ridiculous, which is a story of two people coming into their identities 
uh, and seeing one another and the delicacy of first love and all of that. It was sort of, mm. we just looked at one another, like, what are our tools here? And of course, one of the chief tools is how do you score a film like this? Yeah. How do you both represent the period it's in, the context it's in, but how do you help an audience organize what they're seeing if, if that, in fact, is something a score helps to do? Uh, and so when Luca brought up Trenton Atticus, I was just thrilled at the idea that they might mm. have a, a very specific take on this film because of so many of its component parts are things that I feel like we've heard from their musical opinions about in the past, but not all at the same time. Do you know what I mean? So it was yeah. just, I was so fascinated by what they were going to give the film. And so when I heard the first uh, guitar pieces that they had sent Luca on his iPhone, we, we mm. were, I remember it was a, a costume fitting day. So Taylor and Timmy were there and they were starting to look like their characters. And Luca had had these two music cues that Trent Atticus had sent us. Uh, you know, uh, at pretty high volume in the in the area of the warehouse where we were wow. doing fittings, and all of a sudden, all at once, really, you could see Timmy and Taylor enter these characters. You could see how they would look, how they would feel, and their nervous systems, and how the score was going to surround them and contextualize them. And all you know, I just looked at Luke and I said, "We're, we're okay. I think we're okay. I think this <laughs> is actually going to work on a human level, on a humane level, as opposed to just a couple of genre levels." And also, I think as well, because that's quite a that's quite a, a beautiful way and timing of when uh, you know they were brought on, they were part of the project. Because so much of the time, a lot of the time anyway, you know, films are are edited, and then the composer comes in and is asked to score a film. But there's been several occasions that I've been lucky enough to talk to people about where the music's been there whilst they're filming, or or elements of it, you know, little bits of cue, even if it's just a kind of a motif or a theme or there and how it's really informed performance or character or I mean I think the one that really stood out for me actually was Hilda Godnottier for the for Joker and she talked about how you know she she read the script spoke to Todd kind of couldn't quite get it and then she just took a bit of time and sat with her cello found this piece center and you know and then that informed so much of Joaquin's performance in that film and I feel like with Bones and all as well that this you know, when I spoke to Luca and he talked about, I nearly passed out when he mentioned the deer hunter and that kind of guitar. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's probably the film that I hold dearest of when I first recognized how powerful film could be. And and you feel it, you feel it's kind of it's it's in their it's in their performance, it's in there, you know, it's it's not just being placed on top. No, and what it does is it articulates something that may not be obvious out of the gate, even for us collaborators on the film. And I think it, you know, that Deer Hunter reference is a powerful one because I think the the two films share that this fact that 
the third rail of the film is love, which is yeah. not necessarily what you expect from a war film or from a sort of horror road film. Yeah. But the score, the scores of both films are so insistent about that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love that reference too. I think you always have a feeling Like you knew it all along I kept believing I was never When you first read that book, though, was there was there much musicality in it for you? I mean, is that something you think about when you're writing? Do you write? Do you ever have music around when you're writing, or are you reaching for things? To, I don't know. Talk to me a little bit about if that kind of jumps off the page sometimes at you or not. Music is a huge part of my writing process. I, I don't know that it is for everyone, uh, mm. but it is for me. And one of the first things I do once I feel like I have a sense of the tone that I'm going to be writing toward is I put together playlists um, and eventually, you know, share them with other people, other you know, sort of collaborators on the film, if it's helpful to them. This, I also changed the time period in the script. So suddenly we were in 1988 as opposed to the, a decade later, which is when the book was set. So I wanted to, particularly with Luca, because I know how meticulously he builds his worlds and his films. I try to write scripts for him that are very, very detailed. Now, whether he chooses to keep those details is, is not important. But what mm. is important is that there is a level of world building in the script that mimics the level of world building that will be in the film. And so a lot of the diegetic songs that are in Bones and All were in the script, um, Duran Duran, Kiss, uh, that George Strait song. Um, there's an aha song you can hear at the carnival. Those were all things that I sort of chose to be period accurate, but also to be tonally accurate. And the Sibelius piece that Taylor plays on the piano at the beginning of the film was in the script. Those things, I just put them there to kind of, as a, a sort of a tonal constellation yeah. And then what happens with them happens. But but I um but I never want to give that little bit of power that a screenwriter has to help shape the tone with you know sort of musical choices away. I want to use it. But then, you know, it's very different when I'm working in television where I'm the showrunner and and have actually have and the and the I mean the arbiter of the taste of a show as opposed to when you know you're working film and really is the director so yeah i go back and forth but it's always the same process when i'm writing which is i really really do try to understand how to start coding 
the emotionality and the psychology of the film into music. So that's a big, big, big piece for me. What kind of things were on the playlist then for when you were writing Bones and All? Well, I listened a lot to ambient and experimental music. You know, so when I'm writing, I almost never choose uh, music that somehow speaks to the, the sort of the emotionality of, of the work for me, because I don't, I, I don't find that useful. I find it sort of repetitive and it's kind, kind of boring. Um, but what I do try to do is write to, write to music, and this is typically music that doesn't have percussion, doesn't have percussive bass lines, drones, uh, sort of ambient music like that, because it can put, it can just put me in a mental state that is more about psychology or probably even more a bit about metaphysics than it is about emotion. Yeah. Um, and that's where you need the help. You need the organizing principle of some kind of spiritual reaction to a project to kind of keep you through it. So my husband, who's, who's very, <laughs> who uh, sometimes is sort of downstairs when I'm up here working, uh, if I don't have the headphones on, I, I always think he's really perplexed as to how, what it's giving me. You know, it might be like one of my favorite recordings is just, you know, somebody put a chair in a room with a little bit of air current on it and then some, you know, sort of, sort of high uh, fidelity microphones. And it's like, I, I don't know why that turns on my blood, you know, when I'm writing, but yeah, somebody just in the kitchen making lunch, I'm sure it's really tedious. <laughs> I think it's all, it's all got to do with, almost kind of like it's it's knowing how things can inspire or help you sort of thing. It was so bizarre today, actually. I was We had a crazy amount of snowfall today, which is unheard of. We had like about five, six inches of snow. It was, it was magical and kind of couldn't wait to get out in it with the kids and stuff. But it was amazing that it transported me to a place just being in that environment and the silence that was around the snow of, you know, kind of almost it just muffled the sound of everything. But what I was seeking in my head, I like to ski, I go snowboarding and stuff. And I love the sound in a snowstorm when you're skiing of the, the chairlift or that sound of the chairlift kind of going around the mechanical thing of that kind of like just goes around. Yeah. And I was almost stopped on this hill near us just expecting to hear it. And it's kind of like, no, I'm not going to hear it. I'm in the middle of a common in, in England. It's like there's no ski here. But it was so weird in terms of I just I wanted to just stand and, and take this in and was completely captivated by this beautiful and brilliant kind of natural silence and seeking this sound out. It was so weird. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's amazing how there are things and there are sounds. It doesn't have to be music no. that no. can be transportative or inspiring or, yeah, can just kind of ignite something. No, it's because at the end of the day, it's probably for me about being in a kind of trance with whatever I'm working on. And a lot of things can trigger that, but for me, music is the most is the most natural. But also, I find that it's it's a big help, and uh, maybe other people use it this way too. But when I put together a playlist for a project, I only listen to that project when I'm working. And so, after a week or two, I have almost a kind of Pavlovian response to the music. As soon as I hear it, I'm back in the tone of the film. So it's not only is it very en enriching, but it's efficient. It's interesting as well you saying that because I think that something for me that's become more and more important as I learn more about how this wonderful world works of, of making films is is how important and how kind of the, the lines between the sound department and the music department are quite kind of blurred now in terms of it's important for those two departments to work together and the collaboration to be there yes. and for them to bleed into each other almost and inspire each other and to inform each other as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I 
when I work in television, I, I say the same thing um, when it comes to score is that I, 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 I want score and sound design to, to mix a lot so that you, so that the line between them is never clear. And, you know, this is the way that, that, that I think directors and composers used to work decades ago. You know yeah. what I mean? When, when, when things like Foley and all of that stuff was such a big part of the process that you, there was a kind of curation to it that maybe, you know, in the eighties and nineties was sort of lost as a tool. But it's one of the things I really love about working with Lucas. He, he, he uses that tool a lot. And, you know, when you think about the sound design of his films, they really are, they, they, they are inseparable from the way that films are scored or how music is used in the films. And I just find that so much, um, it just gives the film so much more than if those two things were considered separate entities. And unique to each one as well. You know, if you think about, if you compare like the, the films that you've worked on for A Bigger Splash, for Suspiria, and then for Bones and All, they're all very different, you know, in terms of, of how that works, but the, the importance of it is 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 always there. Well, because place is so important in these films that Luke and I do together, and and place you you experience place obviously a lot through your ears, maybe in a way that you don't even realize, and maybe that's yeah. good. Maybe the kind of subconscious way you experience place with your ears is a huge help in a film because it helps you focus and curate the, an experience um, that feels. Uh, naturalistic even if the imagery isn't do you mind me asking why you chose to change the the time frame of when it was set bones and all well when i started to to have my own reaction to the book to the central metaphor of the book once you decide to empathize with these characters you have you have to start thinking about their condition in a broader way in a more metaphorical way a social way and you know my experience of growing up gay in a rural part of of, of, of america helped me decode that metaphor one way. And I sort of attached yeah. to the story and the characters through that. And when I started to think about all the different ways different people could take their own experience, painful experiences, or, or feeling, you know, their experiences of feeling invisible or marginalized or what have you, and yeah. also attach it to the film, I thought, well, I want to get away from any period or any, any situations that push the audience too far in the direction of any one interpretation. Mm. And I thought if you go back to the 80s, really before there were a lot of tools in the internet, and if you went before people could actively try to find one another um, in these in these digital spaces, and we also thought of the 80s, not in the nostalgic way I think a lot of 80s projects do, you know, which they focus on the kind of the pop elements of the 80s. That's yeah. not my memory of the 80s. <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember hearing a song like... Um, I don't know, like, uh, here comes the rain again, and the tone, like, the tone of that song, thinking, like, oh, somebody, somebody understands, you know, what what this decade is like.
if you strip the pop away and you focus on all the weird ways in which the 80s was nostalgic for the 50s and 60s, do you know what I mean? And yeah. um, there was something there that I thought could could open a lot of doors for people subtextually about how to interpret the metaphor of cannibalism in the film. And just once I started thinking along that line, it was it just all made a kind of new sense to me. It's amazing for you to see because, you know, you, you, it's not just a case of you, you write the screenplay and that's, you know, that's your involvement done. You're, you know, you're an executive producer. You're there throughout this whole process. And I imagine it must be wonderful to be on set and to kind of see your words come to life through these performances. Yeah. And seeing the interpretation that these incredible talented, young, new, but also experienced. I mean, Mark Rylands, for example, that character is extraordinary and that performance is just it blew my mind sort of thing and and that in particular must be because it was lovely hearing Luca talk about you know he Mark went off to like some kind of flea market and came back with all these pins and stuff and just as a collaborative team allowing your actors to to feel like they can have input and feel like they can be part of that journey and then to see what they can do with that that must be a wonderful thing to to see it is and being a producer on this film allowed me access to you know, really almost all of the conversations that, that were going on about how this thing would look, how it would sound. Um, and be, obviously, you know, being at Luca's elbow for the production, it's humbling at the end of the day when you realize, and, and I'm at the point in, in, in my own writing career where I have some assurance that if a project gets made, it'll probably get made with good actors, you know what I mean? And, and good composers and good DP, you know, it, it really makes me, mm understand that i i really cannot slack off <laughs> like you know I, I i joke that the you know my new year's resolution every year is to be the dumbest person in every conversation i'm in and uh, honestly that's my, that is now my life and i'm so thankful for that but man do you have to be on your toes <laughs> <laughs> oh man what makes you want to jump into a project whether that be you know, show running, like you say, or to to take on a an adaptation, or what, you know, whatever that is. Is it something you're seeking, or is it different for each project? I think it's different for each project. I I don't have many uh, criteria for sort of what I what I might do next, but 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 the one, the big one, is I just want to stay out of the middle of the road. Do you know what I mean? I want to do yeah. things that are my other sort of uh, mantra is I want to work on things that scare me with people that don't. And if I can keep doing that, I just feel like I'll, I'll, I'll be the luckiest person. And so I try to, when I say that about projects that I want to do things that scare me, either because they're things I've not done before mm. or they're things I know are going to be technically tricky and there's a real risk of failure. I mean, if everyone hadn't done their jobs well on this film, it would, it would have been ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? And, and I just yeah. love the situations where you're on a high wire with no net and everyone has to do their best work to make it happen. I mean, that is exhilarating to me. Yeah. What's next? Do you know? Uh, I'm, wor I'm working out um, a Western that is a kind of companion mm. piece to a show I did, the first season of a show I did called The Terror. Yeah. Uh, that's set in the 1840s uh, that I'm excited about. I've written a fourth project for Luca that I'm done with my work. <sighs> now he has to decide when to pick it up yeah. and start his work. It'll be the biggest thing we've done together. And, and, I think the hardest thing, I keep saying that every time I do a film with Luca, I'm like, well, <laughs> surely that's going to be the hardest one we ever do together. And <laughs> that, that lasts for about a couple of months. And then I realize, yeah. Oh, yeah, here we go again. 
how did you start working together? How did you, how did that relationship begin? He was sort of uh, off the sort of the success of I Am Love. He was looking for a, maybe an, an American project to direct. Yeah. And uh, he just was reading scripts and ran across two of mine that were looking for directors and reached out to see if I might want to collaborate with him on this remake of La Piscine for Studio Canal. And he didn't disclose to me that he had said no to this thing a few times and really wasn't sure that it was for him. He just sent me the film and and I watched it and I thought, oh, I don't want to talk my, I, I don't want to talk anyone out of giving me a job, but I really don't get this. I don't understand why someone would remake this film. When I told him that, I chose to be candid and he said, that's the answer I was looking for. Let's Amazing. start over. Yeah, no, I, honesty pays off. <laughs> yeah, there's not there's not enough of it around. That's that's a shame, isn't it? It's, it's a slightly odd question, but it's been so lovely to get to talk about this film from different angles. You know what I mean? In terms of from Luca's perspective and, and the response that Trent and Atticus had talking about this film, their faces just lit up whenever they talked about this experience and yeah, just the joy in, that they had from it. But is there a scene for you that, I don't know, from from kind of seeing it through from adapting the, the novel to your interpretation on the script to being there in the journey that you're you're most proud of or that's had the biggest impact on you personally? I guess I I would have to say it's probably the scene on the hilltop in Nebraska. Oh, yeah. Just because their performances are so both generous to one another and that was lovely to watch on set but but they're they're when you understand that she's not going to let him evade this question of what what he's done and the way that Taylor just insists you know which is in the script obviously but there's a there's a way that that she carries the emotional weight of that scene in a really in in, in playing defense for this this you know it's Timmy's big moment in terms of the sort of the, the the drama the line of drama of his character um and just the way that taylor surrounded him in her performance and kept him you know kind of safe both emotionally as actors but as characters as well i, I just find that really beautiful yeah that scene on its own is just the most beautiful and perfect short film almost in a way it's just yeah. you know if you kind of watch that on loop it's just absolutely breathtaking and I almost kind of feel like every time I watch the film, I get more from it, from that particular scene as well. Like the pace to it is just perfection, you know, in terms of, yeah, and that landscape's like, oh, yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. extraordinary. Before we run out of time, David, I wanted to ask as well, because it was lovely hearing you talk about the sort of musical side of, of things for you when you were, I guess, kind of discovering music and film and stuff. But was there a, was there a film and the music within a film that really resonated with you when you were when you were younger and when you were starting to get into film, whether that be just as a fan, but maybe considering that being the area that you wanted to get in work-wise, but it's maybe stuck with you. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think the first time, I mean, obviously when you watch Kubrick or you watch Hitchcock, I mean, you understand music and film in a, in a very specific way, but I think the first score that I really moved me because it was participating in the storytelling in a way I hadn't considered before was mm. it was Savignan Priestner's score for Kislovsky's Blue, White and Red, particularly Blue.
I mean, that score is, it is, it is plot, it is character, it is theme, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it is the emotional um, articulation of things that the character, at least the character in blue, Juliette Binoche, can't otherwise articulate. I mean, there are so many layers to that score. It really sort of set my head on fire when I saw those films for the first time. I would say uh, I loved Peter Gabriel's score for The Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, that is such an interesting interpretation of what a score is. Why has he not done more scores as well? That's that's the thing I want to know. It's like I, I, I spoke to the, a wonderful composer called um, Nanita Desai, who basically started her career working for him. I need to ask her. I'll ask her why. He's like, why is he not do more scores? let's start a let's start a uh, petition yeah shall we yeah yeah totally (laughs) well listen it's it's i'm so grateful for you taking the time i know how busy you are and wish you all the success you know in this crazy season that we're getting into with awards and stuff because i I really think the film deserves the recognition on that side of thing as well as the wonderful response that it's getting from from audiences as well who are really taking a lot from it i think uh, and quite rightly so and i can't wait to see um the next project that you and Luca work on together, but also, you know, what, what's next from you? Well, I appreciate you saying all that. Yeah. Honestly, I wake up in the morning and think I'm the luckiest, <laughs> luckiest guy alive. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like, hold on. I get to talk about film and music. Yeah, yeah. Really? No, it's, yeah. No, I don't take any, any, any of this for granted. Like I really am grateful every, every day. Oh, well, listen, thank you so, so much. Of course, yeah. take care. Have take care. Bye bye. You too. Bye. bye. Thanks. Peter Gabriel scored The Last Temptation of Christ, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtrack with David Kajanich. 
Just a quick reminder of the competition, a chance to win a pair of tickets to the wonderful The Fablemans, the new Steven Spielberg film. It's an exclusive pre-release screening happening in London on the 19th of January. You need to be able to make your own way there, but you could be in with a chance of winning a pair of tickets. If you can answer this question, what was the first film that Steven Spielberg and John Williams worked together on and what year was it released? Send your answers to info at edithbowman.com before the 15th of January, 12 noon, and you could be in with a chance of winning. My huge thanks to David for taking the time to talk to us. Bones and all, it's still showing in some cinema, so if you haven't been along to see it yet, get yourself along. edithbowman.com is the place to find my conversations with Luca and Atticus and Trent, though we are, of course, available whenever you choose to listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and our YouTube channel is chock full of videos of the interviews that we do and bonus content as well. In fact, I've just dumped a load up there. So head over and have a look. Next up, well, who knows? It could be Kate Blanchett. It could be Carter Burwell. It could be both. I just don't know at this point, but make sure you tune in next week to find out. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>